0: It is Friday, May 13th, 2022. Happy Friday and welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson, back in D.C. after a stint in New York. Glad to be home. Gladder still to have every single one of you here with us between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time every single weekday. And if you can't tune in as we air, we have a podcast. It is free. GuyBensonShow.com. Is our website our online home for the radio show? Everything you need is right there, GuyBensonShow.com. If you are new, we are especially glad you're here. I'm the political editor at TownHall.com. I'm a Fox News contributor. I'll be on Fox News Sunday this weekend. Shannon Bream is anchoring, so I'll be on the panel. Looking forward to that. I was on Gutfeld last night, and boy, was that was that a ride! We'll talk about it in the home stretch at the end of today's show. So stay tuned for that. We've got some uh, behind the scenes color and details and some sound on something that they surprised me with last night. Welcome to Guy Town, folks. That's coming up. Also on the show, here's the lineup today. Later on this hour, Governor Brian Kemp, Republican, Georgia. He'll be back on the program. Later on, about half an hour from now, in the next hour, Carol Markowitz, our friend, she's going to be here on a variety of subjects, including, yes, more COVID restrictions, some of which are creeping back, some of which never went away, and more. That's all with Carol. Bill Melugin will also be here, our Fox News colleague. He covers so much at the southern border. We will talk to him about immigration. Also, some crime stories out of Los Angeles, which is technically where he's based. I've got some questions for him coming up. And in our final hour, we'll do some woke tales with Jason Rance, radio host and a friend of ours here. You recognize him from Tucker Carlson's show where he is a regular. Jason Rance joining us in the happy hour just after 5 p.m. Eastern time. As we begin the show today, I want to start... By talking about this baby formula shortage issue, and I will confess to you it's an issue about which I do not know very much. I'm not an expert. I'm not going to play one on the radio and pretend like, oh, I just did some uh, Wikipedia research and I'm an expert. I'm going to tell you everything that needs to be known about baby formula. I'm not a parent, at least not yet, although I would imagine one day if I become a parent, baby formula will become an extremely important part of our life and our family for a period of time. And so I can understand why this is so personal and so concerning to a lot of people. I have friends with young children right now. I see them posting on social media. A few of them text me. They are worried about feeding their infant. And luckily, thankfully at this point, none of them are so worried that they actually fear for the well-being of their child, but they are anxious because they call around to different stores, they drive around to different stores. It takes multiple runs just to buy enough food to sustain their child. And that's not a good feeling, and that's not a familiar feeling at all here in the most prosperous country in the history of the world. And I know this is sort of... Traced back to a recall of a major brand, which had then a bunch of spillover effects. The administration is saying, the Biden administration says, oh, they've been aware of this. It's been on their radar for months. Well, the fact that there are now empty shelves and a run on this stuff, I think, does not reflect well on however they've handled this. Right. Their response, they're finally talking about it publicly. They held some event without press, I believe, yesterday. And if their public-facing argument is, oh, yes, we've been on this for months, which is the opposite of saying we were caught off guard and we're playing catch-up. They don't want to say that. But if you're then going to say, no, no, we've been all over it, and then people are seeing this result, I think that's a self-own. That's a self-indictment of whatever they've been doing or trying to do. And I've seen some analyses about what is making this problem worse than it needs to be, over-regulation is one of the factors, unsurprisingly. And I I think it is complex. There are a few different elements fueling it. And I think some of the stuff, and at least I hope that I have the self-awareness not to make sort of snide, snappy little remarks about something that I don't have any familiarity with, where I'm sort of like, you know, breezily and blithely just firing off a one-liner like, well, why don't you just breastfeed then? Which I see some people have done. Or why don't you just switch to a a different brand? First of all, there's an issue finding any brand in some of these places. You have to go to multiple stores. My friend was just at five different stores the other day. And then also you can't, apparently, I've learned, you can't just necessarily easily switch your kid midstream overnight to a new brand. I am a dog owner, and I know that if you abruptly change the food for your dog, that causes problems for the dog in a lot of cases. Digestive problems, that applies to a human baby as well when it comes to what you are feeding them when you're introducing something that is unfamiliar and foreign, especially at such a young, vulnerable age. And we were talking about this on the planning call for the show earlier. Christine is the only parent here at the Guy Benson show. She's a mother of one, Megan. We talk about Megan from time to time during the home stretch. And Christine, you sounded like personally offended by people who were saying, "Oh, just switch," or "Oh, just breastfeed." Like, have these people ever had a kid? You were like almost seething over this.
1: Well, yeah, it's very concerning because like you said, Every child is different. And think about how little a baby is. You introduce something totally different to their small little stomach, and you could have a problem for days on end with your child and wind up in the hospital, wind up at a doctor. It's not easy.
0: And then what about the arguments that's like, well, this is why we have breastfeeding. Deal with it.
1: Oh, stop it. That literally enrages me to you have no clue. Because it's not easy. I I tried. I tried for a month, crying day and night, and sometimes people cannot breastfeed. That is not the answer. That is not the answer to a shortage of formula in the United States of America.
0: Yep, and of course, if I end up having a kid, that will not be an option for us, right? Because even though some activists want to rename mothers and say we can't say mothers and say breastfeeding is offensive, so now it's chest feeding or whatever, uh, dudes can't do it. And so formula is going to be the option here. And so there's this big political debate that's playing out now about the whole formula issue and the shortage. And then there's this question on illegal immigrants because there have been pallets of baby formulas sent down to the border to these facilities where illegal immigrants are being held, including <clears throat> with their children. And those children are being fed with formula, and you're seeing some response to that. And I think there are some people on the right, its mostly on the right with this sentiment, who I don't believe are framing the issue terribly well. I think some of the messaging uh, could be worked on, which is then precipitating a response from the left where they're saying, oh, look, all these so-called pro-life conservatives want a bunch of babies to starve to death. Just because they're illegal immigrants and not U.S. citizens, this is pro-death xenophobia from these people who claim to be pro-life. And that's the typically and characteristically dumb and dysfunctional state of the discourse around this issue on that question in particular. And I saw enough of it. It wasn't just like a stray tweet here or there. It is a narrative now. It's a narrative on the right about illegal immigrants getting this formula where there's a shortage and there's scant supplies and a lot of American parents are worried. And it's a narrative on the left that the right now wants to just starve these babies because they are xenophobes and racists or whatever and hypocrites. And so I just want to walk through my thoughts on that a little bit here as we start the show. And I begin by conceding that I think some of the points and some of the arguments being advanced on the conservative side should be a little bit more compassionate and should just open with the obvious statement, at least to me it's you know glaringly obvious, just a basic statement of humanity that no one wants babies to starve to death. I know we're having a different discussion about babies in the womb. In the last few weeks, because of everything that's happened around the Supreme Court in that leak, let's just put that off to the side. Unless you're a monster, you do not want an infant to starve. That is true on the left. That is true in the middle. That is true on the right. I also don't think, and this is now directed at the left, nobody is arguing that illegal immigrant babies should be allowed to starve amid the shortage in favor of the formula going to fully American infants. No one's saying, just let them die. Let them starve. That's not our stance. That's psychotic to say. And yes, it's true that in many of these cases that we're talking about here, these babies, these tiny children, are in U.S. custody. So because of that, we have an obligation to feed people who are in U.S. government custody. And if those are babies who only eat formula, that's part of the equation. This is not an argument about denying human beings sustenance. But the sentiments here that are real and are legitimate are, number one, just a a gut, intrinsic, visceral fear and anger over a serious problem, the shortage, that's affecting babies. And I think a lot of people are wondering, what is this government response? Why has it been so lackluster and almost non-existent? Certainly not very prominent. They say they've been working on it for many months. Okay, where, what has that gotten us? If people are wondering how they're going to be able to feed their own baby, of course they're going to be anxious and upset about that and fearful about that. That's a real sentiment. That is completely legitimate. And then secondly, there is going to be resentment that given the precious resources that are limited right now of this particular product, which is essential to sustaining life, with those resources limited, the fact that the U.S. government and U.S. taxpayers have to redirect some of those precious rare packets of formula to illegal immigrants the fact that that has to happen to this great extent that it does because of the border crisis down there that is a source of genuine totally justifiable outrage you're not saying don't feed the babies you are saying it is the fault of the government that there are that many illegal immigrant baby, uh, illegal immigrant babies down there in the first place that we have to help because This administration has incentivized on a massive scale the process of illegal immigration. They have effectively thrown open the floodgates, and despite their protestations to the contrary, they have instituted something very close to an open borders policy. They do not have control over the border. All of the things that they are doing in terms of their public policy act as magnets to encourage this crisis and the crisis has been encouraged people have responded it is getting worse and worse and so when you have an overwhelming number of people coming into this country illegally and they have to be processed those who want to get caught and processed and then they want to be released your chances go up if you're a family if you've got kids right all the incentives here are very perverse When that processing is happening, you've got people in U.S. custody, you have to help those people live, you have to feed the children, and that involves formula. So I don't think that it's wrong or racist or cruel for American parents to say, I am struggling to find this stuff for my own kid, and I pay taxes to the government, and I don't like the fact that we have people in charge of the government who have caused this problem. Where now you have non-U.S. citizens who've broken our laws, getting this help, where we're struggling on this front ourselves. And we're paying for it. And there's so much of it because the politicians in charge have guaranteed that there would be so much of it through their policies, through their encouragement of illegal immigration. Because that's what this is. And it sort of reminds me, remember this? This was last year. We talked about it on the show briefly. Every, these news cycles just fly by. This was like a two day news cycle. Do you remember last year out in California where it was discovered, Fox News reported it, that in San Diego, California, there were public school teachers teaching illegal immigrant kids in person schooling at their detention centers, in local centers. While the schools in California were all closed, the public schools, because of all the insane, anti-science, anti-child, harmful, disastrous COVID policies. You had California schools, most of them, in the bluest, one of the bluest states in the country, of course. California is like the worst on this front, one of them. California schools were closed for a year and a half. And you had American parents with their kids locked out of classrooms doing failed remote learning. Then they find out that the in-person learning is happening for illegal immigrants, for their kids. It's crazy. People were mad about that, and they should have been mad about that. That's righteous to be angry about that. And they were poo-pooed and derided as all the usual things, racist and all that. You can call people who get upset with this stuff, upset by the example in San Diego, upset about what's happening with baby formula and just the scope of the illegal immigration problem at the border. You can call them racists who want babies to die. You can smear them that way. That's fine. I know a lot of people like to feel good about their own self-righteousness. But if that's how you view this whole issue, just don't be surprised in November. Just don't be surprised. I'm just telling you that's your attitude, fine. We'll see what happens in a few months. And that's where the accountability needs to come, at the ballot box. The Guy Benson Show, just getting started on this Friday. Stay tuned.
2: A fresh take on the biggest stories of the day. It's Guy Benson.
0: I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. So this is a story from Politico, and you can file this in the insulting category. Let me just read the lead of this story. A painful and foreboding reality is setting in for the White House as it enters a potentially dangerous stretch of the COVID fight. It may soon need to run its sprawling pandemic response on a shoestring budget. This is the spin that we've been getting from the White House and Democrats on Capitol Hill now for weeks. Crying poverty when it comes to COVID response. Oh, for this, for testing, for treatments, to make sure that people get vaccinated. We, we're just running out of money. A shoestring budget, they say. We spent $6 trillion on COVID. $6 trillion. Now, a lot of that was in a slush fund, totally wasteful, nothing to do with the essentials, which is why they're now making these outrageous claims. That's their fault. They allocated that money, $6 trillion shoestring budget. Come on. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show host, Guy Benson. Happy Friday. Still to come later in the program, Carol Markowitz, Bill Malugin, and Jason Ranch We've got a lot to get to still on the show. I want to shift my attention here a bit to the state of Georgia, which has been kind of like political ground zero in America for a couple years. It was one of the big battleground states in 2020, of course. We remember how that played out. And then the Runoff elections for the U.S. Senate in 2021. That also turned out poorly from my perspective. And then we've got a couple barn burners again in Georgia heading into 2022. Now, setting aside the electoral politics of it, there's also a lot of just policy happening in Georgia as well. And joining us now is the governor of the great state of Georgia, Brian Kemp, a Republican. You can follow him at GovKemp on Twitter. And, Governor, it's great to have you back on the show. Hey guy, thanks for having
3: me on. Good afternoon.
0: So it's my understanding, Governor, that today is the conclusion of the bill signing period, which has been an extremely busy one for you as governor down there in Atlanta. What have you all done in the state of Georgia this session?
3: Man, how much time have I got? <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you I'll give you three up. minutes. <laughs> We had a great legislative session. It's one of the best, most conservative I've ever seen. Just an incredible budget where I was fulfilling the promise to do a $5,000 dollars across the board teacher pay raise when I ran. So we've gotten the last installment of that done this year. We're sending over a billion dollars back to the taxpayers to put in their pocket to help them offset this 40-year high Biden inflation. We were able to suspend the gas tax for two months to Help save people a little money at the pump, again, fighting the bad decisions that it made in Washington, D.C. We uh, did a lot of things on the public safety side of things. When you think about my commitment to going after street gangs and drug cartels and street racers in the city of Atlanta, we did a lot of stuff on education to make sure our kids aren't indoctrinated in the classroom and that our parents have a parent's bill of rights so there's transparency, protecting our kids from obscene materials, passed a, you know anti-mask mandate in our schools, putting our parents back in charge of our kids' education. So it's been an incredible session. Uh, also, we were able, because of our state being open and our revenue coffers being full, we passed the largest state income tax cut in state history without raising other taxes. And we also did, to honor our veterans, uh, passed a military retirees tax credit that's going to urge them to say, stay in Georgia when they go into their second careers to help us with our workforce development. So it's been a, a great session, and um, you know, really glad it's wrapped up because it was busy, but it was a good one.
0: And that budget, everything that you just talked about and more, when, you, when it all nets out, it's a balanced budget?
3: Oh, absolutely. Thankfully, we have a balanced budget amendment in the state of Georgia, so I balance the budget every year I've been in office. And we've cut taxes now three times uh and, Four years, four legislative sessions, and as you know, two of those were in the middle of a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. Our economy's uh, running on full cylinders right now. We have the lowest unemployment rate in the history of the state. Most people ever working. We had a record year economically last year. We've already broken those numbers in just the third quarter this year. So,
0: You mentioned in part of that answer in the whole sort of laundry four list. Four-year of- high Biden
3: inflation.
0: You mentioned in that laundry list of some of the accomplishments that you have finally sort of liberated the faces of students in schools where people don't have to wear masks. It's now, you know, an optional situation. I know one of the critics of that policy, of course, it's a very popular policy now. It's only grown in popularity, finally starting to align with the actual science on this. But Stacey Abrams, who was your opponent. Back in 2018, she lost. We'll get to that a little bit later here. Uh, But she wants to be governor again. She was critical of that. Talking about school masking is something that, you know, mandatory masking she supports. Except, of course, famously, she went into that elementary school surrounded by a bunch of masked kids, masked for no good reason, while she herself was not masked. And she was taking photographs unmasked. I just find that so interesting that you can have someone in that last sort of moment of time where it was still politically sort of the the popular thing to say on certainly the Democratic side of the aisle, to say we have to keep forcing children to wear masks in schools, whereas she clearly felt like that lesson or that science did not apply to her, then the politics changed really quickly under her feet. I wonder if she has completely reversed herself.
3: Well, uh, that was the height of hypocrisy, and it was really interesting. If you remember, Guy, in the aftermath of that, all the— Democratic governors around the country started following the political science when she was taking such a beating for that. And they got rid of their mask mandates. You know, if parents want their kids to wear a mask or if there's a reason health wise, for them to do that, they can do that. We don't need mandates, you know, to have masks on our children. We should let our parents and their positions make those decisions um, with the parents having the ultimate say so. But, you know, she's also the one that criticized me when we didn't do vaccine mandates. In fact, we were involved in four or five lawsuits against the Biden administration to push against that, to give Georgians and Americans the choice over their health care. But the Democrats want to control every aspect of your life. You know, when I reopened the economy amid heavy criticism, her being one of the main critics, you know, she criticized me for that. She criticized me when we were pushing to get her kids back in the classroom. And, you know, the data in the Trump administration and the Biden administration, is the same. It says our kids can be in the classroom, and they need to be. And we've been doing that here in Georgia. So, you know, I'm looking forward, once we get through this primary, to uh, reminding the voters about that. I think, you know, we've been on the right side of this, fighting for Georgians, putting them first, ahead of the status quo and the politically correct, while she's been flip-flopping on all these issues. You know, pressuring Major League Baseball to move the All-Star game, and then pleading that they don't do it, even though they did. I mean, you know, you can't be a flip-flopper to people. And I haven't been, and I think Georgians are going to show that in November.
0: And, look, I want to come back to the source of that controversy with the Major League Baseball thing in just a moment. Before we get to that, though, you mentioned inflation, which is the number one issue to voters this year. Poll after poll shows that President Biden is deep underwater on that issue. You... Mentioned there that you have suspended the gas tax in Georgia for a few more months, just like a little bit, a little modicum or a respite uh, and some assistance for people in Georgia just to deal with this this crushing weight of inflation that's dragging down their real wages, dragging down their quality of life, their purchasing power for basically everything that they need to buy. There's really not that much – that a governor can do. Honestly, there's only so much that a president can do. Unfortunately, Biden's doing most of the wrong things and has been for more than a year. You're doing your best to try to mitigate some of those problems. How do you try? How do you make that effort? Even though there are so many huge factors way beyond your control at the state level?
3: Well, I, I tell people all the time, guy, we think we can't fix every broken problem in Washington, D.C. Look, Joe Biden. Has broken a lot of things in less than a year and a half. It's really amazing to see how quickly things have eroded because of bad decisions, spending too much money, you know, not pushing to get people back to work sooner when it was safe to do so. When you had a lot of the uh, states around the country that are governed by Republican governors that were doing it the exact opposite of what the administration was doing. We were, you know, trying to help people get back in the workforce and. And cutting off the extended and un- unemployment benefits because we needed people in the workforce and it was safe to do so. And the Democrats held out for too long. So when you're paying people to be home, spending too much money, the supply chain gets tight, the demand grows, and it creates enormous inflation. On top of that, you got a disastrous domestic energy policy by this president and this administration and the Democrats that are in control of Washington, D.C. And look, the vast majority of Americans are paying the price of that at the pump. They're paying the price of that in the grocery store. And we're just trying to give Georgians as much relief as we can to help them fight through this so that we can get to November and send some reinforcements to Washington. But we're going to continue to keep the pressure on them because look, they, they, they need to open up the domestic supply I mean, I understand where the base of his party is, but he needs to do what's right for the country, not his politics. Well, he's doing the
0: opposite. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're doing That's the, the right. opposite of opening up. They're closing down further, which just seems like total insanity. Now, Governor Kemp, I want to ask you about really the biggest political fight of last year and how it's starting to play out this year now that we're hitting election season. Obviously, you're in the middle of a big primary election on, on both sides. There's a big Senate primary. There's the governor primary that you're involved in, and the Democrats have that as well. And I don't want to get into the electoral politics. I do want to talk about the election itself because you all reformed your election process in Georgia. It was lied about constantly. We had you on this show a lot during that fight because I was really annoyed. I was angry about the degree to which the lies were coming and being amplified by basically uh, the entire Democratic Party, many in the media, and, of course, a bunch of activists who were pressuring corporate America to wade into the fight, often ignorantly, blindly, not knowing the actual facts. And we had you on and we had uh, Raffensperger on. We had Gabriel Sterling on. We had people setting the record straight about what was actually in the law, saying a lot of the early voting has actually been expanded in meaningful ways. No, these allegations aren't true. Here's what it actually says. And you had President Biden, regardless of any of that, I guess he didn't really care about the facts. He said this was... Not just Jim Jim Crow 2.0, which was Stacey Abrams' smear. She came up with that. She registered the domain, if I recall correctly, Jim Crow 2.0. Biden took it even further. The president of the United States said it was Jim Crow on steroids, worse than Jim Crow, which was just unbelievably insulting and a total lie. And we have, now that the election has started in Georgia in 2022, with the new system that you all implemented now in place, We've been giving updates, and we actually have a new little sounder to introduce a very important update. We're going to debut it right here with you right now. Hit it.
2: It's a Guy Benson Show Jim Crow on steroids, Georgia voter suppression update.
0: All right, Governor Kemp, here we go. How badly are voters being suppressed under this new Jim Crow on steroids law? My understanding is... Record turnout, and it's not even close. Is that correct?
3: Oh, yeah, it's incredible. We've seen like 160% increase in early voting between 2020 and 2022. So people are excited in Georgia. They're turning out. They're obviously not being restricted. We were actually talking about that today when President Biden was criticizing our state and using that famous line, Jim Crow 2.0 on steroids, Uh, really just mirroring what Stacey Abrams was selling. And that's what she is. She's profited off of all of this, and none of it was true. But, you know, in Delaware, when you go vote, they call your name out, call what ballot you're going to pull, whether it's Republican or Democrat, and then people can challenge you in the precinct. Can you imagine if we were doing that in Georgia? (laughs) I mean, she, she would be outraged at that. And the other thing I tell people all the time, guys, you know, even though we're seeing what we are in Georgia right now with people turning out as they should in both primaries, Democrat and Republican, we had a big election here in November of 2021. I mean, we had a, a big fight on the Democratic side of the aisle in the Atlanta mayor's race, and you didn't hear any cries about suppression or other things of that nature. So this is something the Democrats are profiting off of. Stacey Abrams has profited off of it and this is what we're battling in the state of georgia this is why we're in a fight for the soul of our state and it's important for the rest of the country to understand because they are coming to your state they're going to bring the same effort this the same misinformation they don't care what the truth is they just care about what polls good and drives their voters out the good thing in georgia is we're pushing back hard like we did with major league baseball and these big corporations and we're being honest with people And we're telling them the truth. And I believe that's going to win at the ballot box in 2022.
0: And your phone cut out for just a second, but I have the stat in front of me. Georgia so far has a 160% increase in the early vote in these primaries between 2020 and 2021, uh, 2022 rather, this year. So that's just in two years, up 160%, this time two years ago, up 160%. If you go back to 2018, Four years ago, it's up over 200% right now. They're shattering records. The Republicans have already surpassed their primary turnout uh, from last time already. The Democrats, we saw Gabriel Sterling was tweeting, they're just about to do it probably this weekend. This is the opposite of voter suppression. That was all a giant lie. And, Governor, the, the companies in particular bothered me. Corporate America, they often, you know, they've got, Democrats and socialists attacking them all the time, trying to punish them and drag down their success. The Republicans have the opposite worldview, and yet they go cowering to the people who would love to destroy corporations, sort of the political hardcore cultural left, and they say, "Oh, you know, we're gonna, we're so, you know, we're so scared of you. Basically, we're gonna send off angry letters. We're gonna." Be opposed to things because you guys are having a huge tantrum. You all had Delta Airlines doing this. You all had Coca-Cola involved in this. Major League Baseball, of course. Uh, that famously happened where they actually pulled out the All-Star Game, a boycott that Stacey Abrams wanted and then didn't want. Joe Biden encouraged it. Have you heard from any of the leaders of these companies or the you know Major League Baseball brass or the commissioner or anything, when you send them this information, hey, look, turnout's up, Everything they told you wasn't true. Like, are they aware of that? Do they? Has there been an apology, or maybe we got this wrong? Have you heard anything like that?
3: No, I haven't. But that's not surprising. I mean, they weren't aware of the facts when we passed Senate Bill Two Hundred Two, the Elections Integrity Act. You know, they were just acting to political pressure, and um, you know. So, so I don't think they want to say anything about what happened because we stood up, and I stood up, and so forcefully push back with the truth. And I'll, I'll tell you, guy I was fighting hard at that time because they were targeting or other businesses and corporations in Georgia and trying to get them to move. And we had to work extremely hard to make sure they knew what the truth was. And, you know, I give some of those a lot of credit for sticking to their guns and just staying with their original statements that, you know, were, were really good statements saying we support secure, accessible elections in Georgia. And, they, you know, yeah, or, were release, or at least be neutral. That said,
0: Right. Like you don't you don't have to support the bill. You could just be neutral. And I would just say, Governor, quickly, I would love for your team to just occasionally send a memo over to some of these CEOs and C-suites at some of those companies who were out there doing the bidding of the left because they were scared. Just give them the updates. Give them the updates on the voting numbers and say, hey, just want to let you know this is what's actually happening next time these same people come to protest or agitate for something just remember that they lied to you last time and maybe that might affect their thinking next time very quickly governor before we let you go i saw a report that hyundai is bringing a plant and a lot of jobs to your state i saw that joe biden i think is gonna be pretty excited he's probably gonna try to take credit for that why isn't joe biden telling hyundai to go to another state because you know it's a jim crow 2.0 state isn't that what he said
3: Well, I think he probably forgot about those days, and we'll keep reminding them. But we're excited about being the number one state in the country for business, and it's no surprise we got great companies looking at Georgia. Um, You know, we'll see what the company has to say next week. Uh, But uh, you know, we have a long, long relationship there, and we're we're pushing hard. Hopefully, we'll be successful.
0: Fair enough. And I think there's a reason why companies might want to come to Georgia. And it has very little to do with the policies of the Biden administration. That's my view on it. Brian Kemp is the governor of Georgia, a Republican governor. Always appreciate it. All right, we'll be right back. Energetic,
2: informed, fast-paced, Guy Benson Show.
0: Back on the Guy Benson Show, I went long there with Governor Kemp. I just want to say today's the last day at the White House for Jen Psaki. She's out after today as Press Secretary Peter Ducey posted on social media. Very nice tribute to her, a photo with her, wishing her well, which is a classy move by Peter. She's off to other things. And we're off to a break. Back after this with another.
2: Live from the most powerful city in the world. Unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Kai Benson Show.
0: It is a brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show. Our middle out of three every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free, of charge, on demand, around the clock, every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, at GuyBensonShow on Twitter and on Instagram. You can follow us there for extra bonus goodies. A lot of which are also available at GuyBensonShow.com. But, you know, sometimes social media has its own thing. A little extra content. At Guy Benson Show there. Programming note, Fox News Sunday. I'll be there in two days. Shannon Bream is anchoring. I'm on the panel. Looking forward to that. Hope to see you Sunday morning. Check your local listings or watch the replay later in the day on Fox News Channel. Fox News alert as we get going here in the middle hour. The Dow had a good day finally up up 465 points at the close ending the week at 32,196 joining us now is carol markowitz columnist at the new york post and she also contributes at foxnews.com carol welcome back happy friday
4: hi guy thanks for having me
0: you bet so i want to start on this i saw just like maybe as we were coming on the air earlier this afternoon you were talking about how, yet again, still to this day, there are parents in New York City begging Mayor Adams and the administration yeah. to change their masking policies for very young children. And I think for many of our listeners who live all over the country, like mm-hmm. you do down in Florida now, that, like, it's yeah. almost unfathomable. That here we Good are talking. in May of 2022, and you still mm-hmm. have toddlers forcibly masked in parts of the country. But that is true for lots of children still, and it's kind of mind-blowing.
4: It is mind-blowing. I, every time I do any international show or even you know national uh, TV shows or radio shows, I, I, I find a way to mention that New York City is still masking two- to four-year-olds because – I think people need to be shocked by this information and, and hopefully um, help New Yorkers get out of this. I, I know that, you know, for a lot of people in New, New York, people think New Yorkers, you know, voted themselves into this. It's their own problem. And, and listen, it is. But there are so many sane people who don't want this. There are millions of people who didn't vote for, say, the mayor, Eric Adams, or for uh Governor, you know, Governor Hochul hasn't had an election yet, but didn't vote for Governor uh, Andrew Cuomo. And they don't deserve this. So I I, I do want to keep speaking out about this because it's just insane that we ever mask toddlers, even for one day. But to have them be the last ones in masks in May of 2022 is just Beyond all reason, and I hope that Americans join in the fight against this.
0: The other thing is, and we mentioned this earlier uh, on on the program this week, in Boston, the schools are still masked. Actively, right mm-hmm. now, mandatory mask mandates in Boston public schools to this day for all students. Yeah. While you've got, you know, and, and I gave the example, and I actually tweeted photos, screenshots from the hockey games, the playoff hockey games in Boston with 18, 17,000 screaming adults, almost none of them in masks, all indoors together yelling. That is allowed. And I think it should be allowed. I'm I'm not criticizing that. But to have that as the rule, and yet you have first-grade six-year-olds masked Mm -hmm. to this day in Boston public schools based on no science, that's crazy. The New York City toddler right. things, that, that, that is crazy. Mm-hmm. And what worries me, Carol, is as you start to see little spikes and new variants and you have a surge here and a surge there, there are some people with power who are mm-hmm. positively itching to reimpose some of this stuff. They want to do it, and they're going to try.
4: Yeah, I, I would absolutely be concerned if I lived in New York City right now that masks will be back you know, by the fall, um, they're having a little mini spike right now. But if the pass of COVID over the last two years has shown us anything, New York will be back into a spike in November, December. And when they hit that inevitable spike, if they act surprised and, um, you know, think that they couldn't imagine that this would happen to them, um, I, I think they will go back to the crutch of masks. Which have never worked to stop COVID at all in any of these places. Masking in the way that we mask just doesn't work. I mean, you know, I was on a flight yesterday, and I would say 95% of the plane was without a mask. But I happened to be sitting next to what looked like a college student um, who was wearing a KN95, and I was like, well, maybe he's concerned about it. You know, who knows his background, right? But then he mm. takes off his mask to eat his stroop waffle and drink his little bottle of water, <laughs> and I'm like, what are you doing? This it doesn't work like this. You know, if the mask works, then you have to keep it on the whole time. You can't take it off for a little while. COVID doesn't understand a little break. Um, And and this is where we are, where none of this has made sense for a long time. It doesn't make sense today. It's just completely anti-science to behave in this way and to have no evidence-based solutions for these people. Um, And I I hate that it's still going on. It really kills me. May May 2022, we're still doing insane things
0: in fairness to him the stroopwafel is very appealing (laughs) and that that's a staple at least on my airline on united yeah they come through on united with them and they have pretzels or stroopwafel and and sometimes i'll really i'll really be feeling myself and i'll ask for one of each to go with my coke zero uh and they're the friendly sky so they usually say yes uh carol i want to ask you about this yeah Uh, i saw this story in the new york post uh And I feel like you are uniquely positioned to actually comment on this. A Jewish heritage museum in your Mm -hmm. longtime city of New York has banned your now governor, Ron DeSantis from Florida, from coming to the museum and speaking. What what stupidity is this?
4: Yeah. So I I won't blame you that you didn't read my article this week, but it was about that (laughs) Um, because I do feel uniquely situated as a. Uh, New Yorker, as an ex-New Yorker, and as a Jew, and as a now Floridian to talk about this. Um, I found it really despicable. And to me, if Governor DeSantis is not welcome at this museum, it means that I'm not welcome because I share a lot of his opinions. I share a lot of his policy goals. Um, I think he's a good governor, and I absolutely don't think that he's said or done anything beyond the pale just invited disinvited from a museum that focuses on Holocaust education. So if the Museum of Jewish Heritage doesn't want Ron DeSantis, that means that they don't want any conservative, and I absolutely feel that they, that means that I'm not welcome either.
0: And I just wonder, and you might not have this number at your fingertips, it may not be an easy number to actually come by at all, but there's a, mm-hmm. a pretty good number of Jewish people who live in the state, of course, of New York, but yeah. also down in Florida, and, and mm-hmm. I sort of would be very curious to see what DeSantis' approval number is among Jewish voters in Florida, because I, I can't right. imagine that he, he doesn't have at least some significant base of support, and you know even yeah. if it's let, let's say a quarter let's say he's got a twenty five percent approval rating. I think it could be higher than that, but let's just I say twenty five yeah. to a th- mm-hmm. yeah let's say let's say thirty five percent approval rating let's say he's pushing fifty percent, whatever the number is within that group. I'm just trying to figure out what the message is to Jewish people who are politically conservative or anti-woke even who say I don't necessarily agree with every single utterance or mm-hmm. policy ever from Ron DeSantis. But on balance, I think he's a good governor, and I'm not offended by him as a Jew, and he has done nothing to offend my Jewishness or or you know, mm-hmm. demean my heritage at all. What does it mean coming from – sort of a handful of people who are cloistered in a very ideological bubble. What message are they sending to people like you and many others, sort of like, oh, you don't really count?
4: Right. So the original piece that broke the story was by the two heads of the organization called Tikva, which were going to have the event at the museum and invite the governor to speak. Um, And so what they mentioned in their piece is that Florida is going through a Jewish renaissance. So many Jews are moving to Florida and they're moving here because of Ron DeSantis' policies, like especially around COVID. A lot of them realized that they lived, they lived in crazy places where kids were put last, where schools didn't open, where kids had to mask indefinitely. You know, it's all related. And they, they made the move to Florida. And I, I obviously am part of that Jewish renaissance in to Florida. And I, so I absolutely meet these people. I understand their, what they're here for. And they're here for the freedom that I came here for. and. The idea that their governor is somehow um, not a a positive figure in the Jewish world is crazy, it's crazy to them. I had so many Jews reach out to me also, I I should say that a lot of them start with, I am a Jew on the left, uh, but I think this is despicable. And I, I think that's something really powerful about that because I think even liberal Jews have reached the end of using the religion as some sort of political movement. I think they're tired of it, and I I think that what happened with Governor DeSantis really opened a lot of eyes.
0: Do you think that the people who made this decision, probably just a handful of them up in New York, are they hearing Mm -hmm. from people who are – you know, upset, is there any chance they would reconsider it? Because, I mean, they're not just, I know, they're preening. Look, they're preening for progressives. That's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. It's what they often do, progressives preen for each other. But Mm -hmm. I feel like when you are representing, or at least purporting to represent a much wider community, you can't really do that. You know, unless you want to say we're the progressive Jewish heritage museum, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm, or the mm -hmm. You know, the NAALCP is what Rush Limbaugh used to call that group, only if you're liberal, right? Like, if that's Uh what you want to call yourself and purport to represent a whole group of people, then you need to be much more neutral and more welcoming. If you don't want to do that, if you only want to cater to one, you know, political ideology or whatever, that's fine. That's your decision. But then don't pretend. Don't claim to be speaking for a lot of people whose voices you are actively not just ignoring but actually insulting.
4: Right. That's true. I mean, that's really what it is, is that they have to either become a political organization, which I think a lot of these liberal Jewish organizations ultimately are becoming, um, or they need to cut this out. I think a lot of um, the donors are concerned about what went down here. Um, I, I have, you know, mutual friends or acquaintances with with various people on the board of the museum who say that they don't like this at all. Um, And it really was a small group of people who made this decision, and they made it because they are afraid. They're afraid of protest. They're afraid of progressive pushback. They're afraid of all this stuff, and you can't live in fear. And I think that if these board members, you know, speak to to them and speak to this, and I I hope this gets resolved going forward, because I don't like being at war with any part of my, you know, Jews. There was just so few of us anyway, and 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 the idea right. that we're so separated and divided, especially over politics, is really, you know, just kind of gross to me. Um, so I, I hope that they move in the right direction. I hope they understand what they did wrong, and I hope they really resolve it.
0: Carol, you write a lot about a different, uh, like a wide array of different subjects all the time. We have about a minute left here, a little less. Mm-hmm. Uh, Your latest piece on the baby formula shortage and and this sort of crisis that's happening right now, what's your general take on what's happening as a mother of multiple kids?
4: Yeah. So I have three kids. I fed them all three completely differently. All these people who are like, oh, just breastfeed, have no idea what they're talking about. This is a a giant problem. And I've been saying for a while that this should be the biggest story in the country, because I I can't even imagine going into like a pharmacy and not having formula when my kids were babies. Just the terror of that. Um, I think this administration is out to lunch. They finally, finally commented on it. But the fact that it took so long is really pathetic. Um, That's really where I come down on this is that we have an absent president who is completely not interested in what's going on with everyday Americans. And I I really wish that, you know, we we didn't have such a complacent media that would push him on it and he would have to comment on things like babies not having food.
0: And when they finally come in, they're like, oh, no, we've been dealing with this for months. I'm like, that actually makes it right. worse. If you've been trying to fix this for months and this is what's happening, you should have just yeah. said we didn't know. That would actually maybe be better. <laughs> Carol Markowitz, great to talk to you. We'll be right back.
2: The Guy Benson
0: Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. Bill Malugian coming up next in our segment here. Moments from right now. I quickly wanted to bring you this data point, though, which will further underscore and reinforce a point that I've made a couple times over the last two weeks. And I will just say first that obviously public polling or public opinion is not really the decisive factor when it comes to something being right or wrong. There are wrong and bad things that have had wide public support in various places through history, and there are good and righteous and correct things that have relatively scant public support. So that's not a barometer, public polling. It's not a barometer of moral correctness or ethical correctness. But it is useful in this sense to push back against some of the arguments coming out of the left in particular, on the question of abortion and the whole abortion debate that's been raging especially hot in the last couple of weeks because of the Supreme Court leak. And we talk about it all the time, how people who are particularly in the pro-abortion category, which I differentiate from pro-choice, these are like hardcore abortion supporters who say we shouldn't make abortions rare who say there should be no limitations on abortion, that's a very small fragment of our society. And I think the fairest way to describe them based on their own standards is pro-abortion. And that is, again, separate from, I think, mainstream, pro-choice, sort of more moderate thinking. And then, of course, there are various gradations of pro-life as well. But what the pro-abortion crowd says is that people who oppose abortion, really at any stage, are radical extremists and misogynists. They hate women. They want to impose their values on women. They sort of try to make it the case that the pro-life movement is dominated by men, especially old white men, just victimizing women and trying to wield power over the lives of women. And men should stay out of it because they can't get pregnant. That's the argument. And I address the whole men should be quiet thing in a recent monologue. You can find that on YouTube. We posted it there. But it also misses this whole line of argumentation, if you can call it that, from the left. It misses the actual reality about what women believe in this country. Let's say we left abortion policy entirely up to women. Here's a YouGov poll, which reflects a similar phenomenon that the latest Fox News poll also showed. They asked the American people at YouGov, do you support a 15-week abortion ban, which is the Mississippi law, at the heart of the current Supreme Court case called Dobbs. It's a Mississippi law that bans abortion at 15 weeks, which, by the way, is less restrictive than a lot of the laws in Europe. In the Fox News poll, there was a large majority in favor of a 15-week ban. There was even a slim majority in favor of the Texas-style six-week ban at heartbeat detection. At that point in the pregnancy, in this survey, 63% of American men said they support a 15-week ban on abortion. 63%, big majority. And 65% of American women support a ban after 15 weeks when it comes to abortion. Almost two-thirds of women, a higher percentage of women than men in this survey, favor this common-sense, broadly popular, limitation on abortion. And yet you would have a lot of people say, these are anti-women, what, women? Two-thirds of women hate themselves? They are so far out of step when they're pushing things like the bill that failed in the Senate this week, that 49 Democrats supported. Abortion until the moment of birth. A huge majority of American women want no part of that. And they don't really want us to talk about that because it punctures their whole weak argument. And that's why we're going to keep talking about it on The Guy Benson Show. Quick break. Bill Voluchin. Talk about the border and crime that's next. Back on the Guy Benson Show, thanks so much for listening. Happy Friday. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day, including bonus Benson on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. For the Guy Benson Show podcast, at your fingertips on demand, seven days a week. Joining us now is Bill Malugin, national correspondent for Fox News, based in Los Angeles, but he's often down at the border. And Bill, it's great to have you back here.
5: Guy, great to join you as always, my friend.
0: I was just in L.A. while you were in D.C., so we were like yeah. ships passing in the night. I hope you had a good right. time at the correspondence Dinner.
5: Yes, it was a good time.
0: Was it your first?
5: It was, and it was actually my first time getting to, to meet a lot of the Fox News people in person after a year.
0: Yeah, it's like we all know you from the air, right? And then you actually yeah, get to meet yeah. people in real life. I mentioned the L.A. part of your bio and that you're based there because I actually want to start the interview today talking about crime in Los Angeles and a pretty significant move on that front from the controversial and embattled district attorney in Los Angeles County. What did you learn yesterday?
5: So George Gascon campaigned on getting rid of cash bail entirely, like many other progressive prosecutors, and that's what he's wanted to do this whole time. Um, Well, just yesterday he uh, issued a memo that I got a hold of uh, where he is reversing course yet again. He is now going to allow his prosecutors to seek cash bail in a wide variety of cases, such as if somebody commits a crime while they're out on bail or if there are aggravating circumstances or special circumstances of the case. So uh, previously he had the door pretty much closed. Now he's opening it back up, and this is yet another reversal on one of his core policies as the recall really starts to heat up.
0: Yeah, so I think it's maybe a little bit cynical, but probably just realistic for me to ask this question. Is there a chance that Mr. Gascon is paying attention to what's happening to his left-wing counterpart In San Francisco, where there's a recall election now days away, and I just saw a poll out this week that had Chiza Boudin down double digits in the recall race. It was a two-to-one margin, what I saw, the people of San Francisco ready to throw him out of office for pursuing, yes, the policies he campaigned on. I guess they sounded better than they are working out in reality, and if the San Francisco voters who put that guy in charge have seen enough – I wonder if Gascon is looking over his own shoulder and saying, okay, arguably L.A. might be a little bit less insane than San Francisco. I could be in real trouble here.
5: He's absolutely paying attention to that. We know that for a fact. He and Chesa Budin are essentially tied at the hip when it comes to their policies. And he's seeing what that that poll you mentioned, that is, I believe it was well over 50% of respondents said that they plan to vote yes on the recall. And he's absolutely seeing that. He's also probably noticing that San Francisco decided to recall three of their school board members. That's right. Uh, so Overwhelmingly. So, oh, very overwhelmingly. So, uh, And San Francisco is about as progressive a city as you're going to find. And these are progressives, uh, you know, some of them getting thrown off the school board and Chesa Boudin, and, and, you know, in some, in some hot water right now. So, yes, George Gascon is absolutely noticing that. But what he's trying to do in L.A., is he's trying to brand the recall as a Republican recall against him. He's trying to say that uh, this is only Republicans against him and he got voted in and this is what the people want. But uh, there are a lot of Democrats who want this recall, including a majority of his his own prosecutors. Almost all of them are Democrats and they voted, I think it was like 95 percent of them or or higher, want him
0: recalled. So it's kind of hard, kind of hard to say this is a Republican recall when your Democratic colleagues are all on board. Exactly. And you're in Los Angeles. Right, exactly. There's not that many Republicans. I mean, you know, numerically, there's quite a few, but they're just totally dwarfed as a population. And having been out there for a few days, and before that, it had been years since I was back in Southern California, pre-pandemic for sure, it was noticeably different. Having not seen the city with my own eyes since probably 2017 or 2018, not that it was perfect back then. It is different and worse now, and there were people just trying to be friendly, saying, hey, maybe don't go to this area after this time, or if you're going to go do that, maybe be conscious of this. There has been a deterioration, Bill, and I know you've probably seen it firsthand gradually. Uh, It was stark having that gap of a number of years for me. At least that was my perception. Oh, 100
5: percent. I mean, you look at I'm, I'm, you probably saw the same things we see every day, whether it's people shooting up meth on the street or just homeless tent cities all over the place with no fear of any sort of repercussions or, um, you know, just the constant stories about crime. Um, the metro system, homeless transients attacks, mass burglaries, whatever you know, you name it. None of that existed about five years ago or at least not nearly in the amount of scale that we're seeing it now. And um, especially the homeless problem. I mean, you pretty much certain parts of the town you go to, whether it's in Hollywood or Venice or, you know, downtown L.A., it's everywhere. Any any freeway underpass, that sort of a thing. And um, it's it's re- it really is exploding. And the, the city keeps throwing millions of dollars at the problem because they consider it a housing problem, but they're not addressing it as either a mental health crisis or maybe a drug crisis. We got Prop 47, where you know, drug possession has essentially been decriminalized, which is why people are allowed to just shoot up in the streets endlessly. So California's confused. It doesn't know what it's doing right now. Things are only getting worse. And, um, you know, Gasco might, might very well be in trouble in L.A. That recall is on track to hit its goal. It's over 400,000 signatures. They need yep. uh,
0: about like 560,000 by July 6th. They're on track to hit that. So we'll see what happens. And it just feels like kind of the skid rowization of the whole city. Right and I don't want to overstate it. it's not the entire city but the the creep of the skid row sort of vibe is real and just to make a political point on my own behalf I do find it interesting I do find it interesting that so many California officials including the governor seem to spend a lot of time attacking other leaders in other states over culture war stuff and it's like you might want to focus closer to home because all is not well in the state of California, and for the first time ever, it lost population heading into the uh, the redistricting in the most recent and, census. Yeah, and,
5: and where are they going to the states they make fun of the most, Texas and Florida?
0: Yep, that's exactly right. Speaking of Texas, let's talk about the border. I've been watching your latest updates on Fox News Channel. I've also been watching your updates on Twitter, and I know it's just kind of more of the same, but some of these videos, very dramatic of what officials call bailouts, people – scattering some from, like, quasi-moving cars once they're being pursued by law enforcement officials. It looks very dangerous. They all go running in every direction. This is one form of transportation for illegal immigrants, and on and on it goes, Bill. Yeah, and it is
5: really dangerous, and it's happening multiple times a day uh, all along the border. I mean, there are human smuggling pursuits taking place almost hourly down here at the border. And those smugglers want to get away. They don't want to be caught because Texas does prosecute them very strongly and severely. So um you'll see the illegals will bail out and they'll go taking off in all directions. And usually uh troopers will kind of let them go. They want to go after the smugglers. And that's why we see these these high speed pursuits, these crashes, these rollovers. But yeah, I mean a lot of these things happen in residential neighborhoods, near schools, near markets. The public it happens right near the public. And some of the videos we've been posting Um, they end violently. They end in rollover crashes and they go taking off all over the place or, you know, they just jump out and a a high-speed pursuit starts. So this is the sort of thing that happens constantly down here at the border that, you know, we're not able to show on TV all the time or maybe people living, you know, in inland states in the United States don't really understand. But these border communities every day have to deal with this sort of thing. I tell you, like, just driving to go get food or something, You'll see troopers, you know, with people pulled over on the side of the road, people handcuffed, sitting in the grass, dressed in camouflage. I mean, it's, it's just wherever you go, it, it's happening all over the place here.
0: I also want to ask you about some of the apprehensions, high-value detentions being made by Border Patrol, by Texas authorities as well. I like to always make clear... It's a pretty small minority of people crossing the border illegally who are felons or dangerous people who mean others harm. It's not fair to paint with a broad brush, but you also can't ignore the criminal and cartel element that's coming across. It is not just a national sovereignty issue. It is a public safety issue uh, Issue in some of these cases. And you've just been tweeting in the last couple of days more examples of you know child molesters, sex predators, And these are the ones being caught, not the ones who are certainly probably disproportionately represented in the gotaway population, which is tens of thousands of people every single month.
5: Absolutely. It's, you know, in March alone, it was 62,000 people who got past our agents. And yes, there will be criminals mixed into that. And you're absolutely right. Just here where I am right now, Del Rio sector, uh, border agents just announced that in just a seven-hour span, They arrested two convicted child sex predators, both Mexican nationals, both with felony convictions for sexual abuse of children from 2016. Both had been previously deported. Both tried coming back. Thankfully, they were both caught. And that's why it's so important to have agents uh, on the front lines. And when these big, huge groups come across, that sucks up Border Patrol resources, right? As I'm talking to you right now, we just had another group. I'm walking across the river, and i got a group of illegal immigrants walking about six feet away from me right now, and there's one single Border Patrol agent here to process them. Um, so it's, it's, it's an issue. They don't have the resources for this, and it all happens at a time when, you know, Secretary Mayorkas is telling Congress they have, quote, operational control of the border. I can tell you they do not, and, and all he has to do is come down here and take a look at it himself.
0: The March numbers were terrible. We'll continue to get the new numbers as we head deeper into the spring and then into the summer. It's expected to go up and up. And there's a big date 10 days from now, May 23rd, where Title 42 is slated to expire. What are you seeing and hearing in advance of that date? Is that going to happen? Are we on track for that policy disaster to actually unfold?
5: Well, we, we should we should find that out by the end of the day. There's a federal court hearing happening right now in the state of Louisiana where a federal judge is going to decide uh, if he is going to impose an injunction against the administration uh, to not allow them to drop it on May 23rd. So today was the final day that the Biden administration uh, had a chance to respond in court. And. Uh, we're expecting the judge to possibly make a decision today in terms of whether or not the Biden administration will be allowed to get rid of it on May 23rd. So by the end of the day, we should have a little bit more clarity on this issue in terms of is it dropping or is he going to issue an injunction and the can is going to get kicked down the road a little bit more.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, in my view as a non-lawyer, I think that the administration has the legal authority to make this bad decision. Whether a judge is going to find a way maybe to postpone that bad decision, we'll see. Ultimately, it's the policy that matters the most. Biden could stop this by changing his policy. He's not doing that. And if he's allowed to move forward, as I think probably constitutionally he should be, when we were down there a couple of weeks ago, Katie Pavlich and I heard time after time from everyone who would have an opportunity to talk to us. They're like, you know, we'll, we'll tell anyone who will listen – It's already really, really bad, and the deeply dysfunctional acute problem will explode if this actually happens May 23rd, and I guess we'll see soon enough. Bill Malugin, last question, and I don't want to put you on the spot necessarily, but I also saw that you put this out publicly in a post yesterday about losing your father unexpectedly six years ago. And I did not know the backdrop to that story. You posted some photos of you and him as a kid. Looks like you're in in a high school graduation photo on one of them. It was an unexpected death about and caused by something that a lot of people haven't heard of. And I know you were urging people to keep an eye out for warning signs. Can you just talk about this? Maybe talk about your dad. And I'm so sorry for your loss. I didn't know this story.
5: Uh Thank you. Yeah, it was uh, May 12, 2016. My dad passed away from a very sudden pulmonary embolism, which I hadn't really heard of before. It's a massive blood clot that moves from the leg up into the lungs and basically stops you from breathing. And the the heart, you know, it it just you just die very suddenly. And uh, he had had a back surgery days before. And the doctors had told us that, you know, sometimes blood clots can be a risk, but the risk is very, very small. So they had him wear compression shorts and make sure he stayed moving around and that sort of thing. He did all that. Um, and then the night before, my mom was saying that he was kind of complaining of some, some leg pain a little bit, um, and we didn't really think anything of it because we didn't really know what to look out for, and you know everything seemed fine. And then the next day, he was on the phone with my mom at work and got real dizzy and lightheaded, and uh, he asked her to come down and uh, come pick up his truck because he thought he was going to faint or something. And by the time she and my brother got there, he was being wheeled out by paramedics, shirt ripped open, no pulse, no heartbeat, and uh, he was gone. Mm.
0: So it's leg pain, dizziness, and it's such a random thing that is so hard to predict. But if there are certain signs, I know in your post on social media, you were urging people just to be cognizant of that, especially if they've had a recent event like the surgery that your dad had. Uh, and, yep. and I'm so sorry. May 12th happens to be my mother's birthday. So that really hit me seeing your post. And I want to to give you an opportunity to, to mention that and just to pay tribute to him. And just looking at those photos, so many wonderful smiles. And I'm sure he would be extremely proud of what you're doing, Bill.
5: Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Guy. Uh, miss him every day. Think about him every day. I love him every day. And always proud to be his son. So I'll keep working my butt off for him to make him proud.
0: That's awesome. Bill Malugin, our colleague here at Fox News, Bill, always appreciate it. Have a good weekend. Likewise. Talk to you soon, Guy. We will step aside. We will be right back on The Guy Benson Show.
2: Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show.
0: And we are back on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. So this clip and soundbite is making the rounds. It comes from a post-performance Q&A, like a panel on Broadway. There's a musical called Company. And on stage after the show was a star in the theater world, Hattie LuPone, who at one point saw a patron who was not wearing a mask in the audience and started mixing it up with this person. Back and forth they went. There were curse words. She went on a rant, very angry that this individual was not wearing a mask. The rule in the theater... For the audience is to wear masks. Here's what it sounded like, cut 10.
1: Your, mask, your nose)
0: Well, I'll give you one guess, since this is radio, you couldn't see the clip. I'll give you one guess who also was not wearing a mask in this back and forth. It wasn't just the woman in the audience. It was also, indeed, Patti LuPone up there on stage with her microphone, screaming at someone else for not wearing a mask while not wearing a mask. I mean, it's just like fish in a barrel. In making this point, the New York Post editorial board editorializing today, quote, chalk up one more celebrity COVID hypocrite. Musical theater great turns out to be a maskless, ranting mask Karen. A viral video shows the Tony and Grammy winner, this is Patti LuPone, screaming get the bleep out at a patron for refusing to mask up after a performance of company at the American theater wing. Yet LuPone wasn't wearing a mask as she ranted, color us shocked. Yes, she was doing a post-show Q&A. She likely wanted her face to be seen and her speech to be understood. But the policy of the theater where she is performing requires masking. So why not her? Does being on stage mean that you can't get others sick? That's the piece of this when it comes to the science that is incoherent, setting aside the efficacy of cloth masks in the first place a maskless Karen screaming about someone else not masking is just sort of peak performance, you might say, on Broadway or anywhere else. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Jason Rance will join us for Woke Tales. That's next. It's the happy hour on a Friday, which is the best happy hour of them all here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. If you can't listen as we air, give a podcast for that. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast has really just exploded in recent months, and we're very grateful. Let's keep the growth going all together. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow our show on social media, at Guy Benson Show, on Twitter and on Instagram. I'll be on Fox News Sunday this weekend. Shannon Bream in the anchor chair. See you there as part of the panel that Sunday morning. Check your local listings. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious. It is refreshing. It is crisp. And we have a ton of it here at the house because we are featuring it at our Memorial Day weekend barbecue. Courtesy of The Long Drink. They're sponsoring the party. We're so stoked. It's delicious. If you haven't tried it, and you're 21-plus only, of course, you should try it. It is alcoholic. It's very good. And it is expanding all over the country. A huge national rollout is underway. To find out where they are sold near you, log on to thelongdrink.com. That's thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly. And our final guest here in our final hour, the final show of the week, is our friend Jason Rantz, host of the Jason Rantz Show on KTTH in Seattle, in Seattle, Tacoma, which is, of course, our affiliate out there as well. And Jason, it's great to have you back here. Thank you so much for having me. I would like to start with a story that I think we can, in fact, put in the category of woke tales. Woke
1: tales, woo, not fairy tales, not fairy tales, just woke tales, woo.
0: I've got the extended version of the jingle here today. So I am putting this in the category of Woke Tales, but in the positive win column. And it's a story that comes out of Netflix, the streaming service giant, obviously. The executives of Netflix have put out a memo to their employees this week, basically telling them, we're going to offer programming options to our audience. You may not like all of them, and if you don't, then deal with it. I'll just read Part of what they said in this memo in a section entitled artistic expression, quote, entertaining the world is an amazing opportunity and also a challenge because viewers have very different tastes and points of view. So we offer a wide variety of TV shows and movies, some of which can be provocative to help members make informed choices about what to watch. We offer ratings, content warnings, and easy to use parental controls. Not everyone will like or agree with everything on our service. While every title is different, we approach them based on the same set of principles. We support the artistic expression of the creators we choose to work with. We program for a diversity of audiences and tastes, and we let viewers decide what's appropriate for them versus having Netflix censor specific artists or voices. As employees, we support the principle that Netflix offers a diversity of stories, even if we find some titles counter to our own personal values. Depending on your role... You may need to work on titles you perceive to be harmful. If you'd find it hard to support our content breadth, Netflix may not be the best place for you. Jason, this is basically the adults finally standing up and saying, this is what we do. We're not going to censor people. If you're going to be one of these babies screaming and carrying on and forming an internal mob to try to pressure us, Maybe you need to find the closest exit sign and take a hike. Again, it's a small win, but I do view this as a win. This seems like progress, real progress.
6: I don't think it's a small win. I think it's a big win. I think that this goes a very long way in pushing back against this mob mentality, this mob culture mentality that the left has been utilizing, frankly, to destroy businesses that they even work for. I think that when Netflix comes out, And puts a memo like this in no uncertain terms. I mean, from a a corporate standpoint, this is a pretty harsh memo. And I think that them doing that is sending a message. And this isn't just some small company that's deciding to do it. This is a large company that's struggling. I think in large part because it's been perceived as bowing to some of the mob on the left. The bottom line is they are in the content distribution space. They're not specifically in the left-wing contribution space, nor are they in the right-wing distribution space. They are in the space of putting out content that is quality that people might want to click on and watch. You and, pay if for. You can't, and pay for. And if you can't get behind that, because some of the views that are displayed in, whether it's a comedy special or a TV show that you're streaming, if you can't get behind that, okay, you know what? You don't have to. You can work literally anywhere else that you are qualified to work at. There's this movement within a lot of folks on the left, and in some cases folks on the right, but mostly when we're talking about the cultural issues, it's on the left that because you work for a company, that company has to hold your political views, that there has to be some sort of institutionalized push for whatever it is you believe in. That's not how right. businesses work. And if you want it to be that way, kudos to you. Go ahead and start your own business.
0: If that's or you can, or you can, or you can you go, go work office. as a journalist and you can start hounding companies to make sure that they adhere to left-wing values, which is what we're seeing. go work for the on,
6: Washington Post.
0: <laughs> exactly right. You can call up video game companies to see if they're going to pay for <laughs> abortions or not, right? Like that's literally a quote-unquote news story that was out this week. But okay, we can quibble back and forth about whether this is a small win or a big win. I take your point. I do think it is highly encouraging. I'm glad to see sort of a shot across the bow in a way that's very explicit Mm -hmm. and kind of fearless because it seems like a lot of the problems that we have right now are born out of fear, where executives might not be radicals themselves, but they are so scared of the radicals and ticking off a certain group of people that they go all in and they, I think, are belatedly understanding how much damage they're doing to their brand, to trust, and potentially you know, political damage as well. The reason that I'm still, in my book, chalking this up as a small win for now is that it is one memo from one company, and you know it will be tested. The real win, the bigger win, if we get to that point here, and yes, this, I agree, this is progress, the win will actually feel more complete and meaningful if and when this is tested and they plant their feet. And don't yeah, run they have to back it up yeah, they have yes. to back
6: it up with any action if it actually comes to that, because your point, I think, is extremely important, that you know, you have some companies that get pushed into making a decision where they don't want to, and I think we've certainly seen a lot of businesses that have been like, I don't want to get involved in political stuff. Just leave us out of it. We're just advertisers on a TV show. We're just uh, you know a company that wants to do whatever it is, put out widgets. But then you have companies like Disney that basically ask for the pushback. They decided to get involved. They decided to give in to the mob, and as a result they got pushback i think netflix has kind of been they've been straddling straddling the line i think sometimes they give in sometimes they don't they've been put in a really difficult position and they've now said yeah you're not going to put us in this position we're not going to uh veer from our business model which is to put out content that we think there's an audience for period they still have some rules in place yeah they're not putting up pornography they they still have their set of standards but it's not going to be driven by politics
0: yeah and i think that The case that likely precipitated this and this memo was Chappelle, and Mm -hmm. it's not like this was some fringe small thing that no one wanted to see. Chappelle is arguably the most popular comedian in the world right now, right? And so to have the whole dust up and the protests outside, it was just preposterous. And I guess they obviously had some meetings about this and decided maybe what they need at this point is a show of force in the other direction, and I'm glad at least for now they've made that decision. By the way, speaking of comedians and Netflix specials, are you by any chance a fan of the late, great Norm MacDonald? Of course. Anyone who's familiar
6: with him is a fan.
0: Uh, I tend to 100% agree with you. Did you see the Norm MacDonald news about what he did before he died? Yep, I'm
6: looking forward to uh, seeing the comedy special, The Secret, which is just kind of a it's kind of dark just thinking about it, recording a well, it's stand-up eerie, special.
0: Right? It's eerie. So he, he knew he was dying. He knew this was going to be his last comedy special. And yet it is so perfectly Norm MacDonald mm-hmm. to leave his fans and leave the world with a surprise bonus stand-up special. Obviously recorded while he was very sick with no one's knowledge. The existence of his illness he kept a secret. He didn't want a bunch of preemptive pity, apparently, is the way he decided to play that. He kept the special secret. And now here we are, about to see more comedy from Norm MacDonald after he's passed away. And it's coming to Netflix at the end of the month. And I mean, I'm going to drop everything and watch it, obviously. And I would do that even if he were still alive, and I wish he were. But given the context, I agree. There's like a little bit of a creep factor, like a, a little bit of a, a shiver up your spine when you're like, oh, it's almost a like bit. Norm reaching down from heaven and giving us this gift. But it's still pretty cool, and it will be funny.
6: It will be funny. And here's the thing. Even if it's not funny, no one can give it a bad review because that would be very uncouth. So no matter what, everyone's going to say it's
0: great. (laughs) True, although he wouldn't be around to object, right, is what he would say. That's the (laughs) joke that he would make right there. But I hope it will be funny. He normally does funny stuff. Oh, it's going to be great. For for all time's sake, if you could just throw in one or two more O.J. Simpson jokes, please.
6: That's all I ask. (laughs) I am kind of wondering whether or not he goes into the – maybe he gets a little serious and and plays against type because he knows it's going to be his last one. I'm just super curious about the direction he's going to go in.
0: Yeah, and he can really do and say whatever he wants. This is almost like a a dying wish, I would imagine. And maybe maybe so. Maybe he actually reflects on life in a serious way and mixes in some humor. I have no idea. But end of the month, Norm MacDonald with one last comedy special, and that's on Netflix. And I just want to throw that in there because we were talking about the company. Jason, let's pause, take a quick break. Jason Rance, my guest on the Guy Benson show Happy Hour. We'll be right back.:
2: you're listening to a new generation of talk, generation of talk Guy Benson
0: we're back on the Guy Benson show with Jason Rance. I want to shift to another story that we covered here on the show yesterday and it involves crack pipes and whether or not tax dollars are going to be so-called safe smoke. And whether those kits entailed crack pipes. The reason that I decided to bring it up yesterday is because the Washington Free Beacon, I know you saw the story as well. They went and actually visited some of these organizations and facilities and got the kits themselves and took photos of them. And at each location that they visited, there were crack pipes included in these kits. And again, it's a very narrow issue, but it comes back to the credibility of the White House and also of fact checkers, because the White House and Jen Psaki and the Biden administration had blanketly denied a few months ago that there were any crack pipes in any of these kits. And I think it's important to point out, we don't have a direct line from the taxpayer grants and the Biden administration to these kits, but these are the types of partner organizations that would be involved in this, and they all, the ones that were visited by this journalist, had the crackpipes in the kits, and Jen Psaki said there were none. It was such a categorical denial. And I see that she denied it again at the White House yesterday, but she kind of tweaked the denial a little bit to sort of change what they were denying. And what bothered me the most about the story— as it emerged yesterday, was not so much the politicians and the political figures perhaps lying or being less than forthcoming or not completely honest. It was the so-called media fact-checkers simply taking the say-so of Jen Psaki and making that the new sort of standard of truth upon which they were going to check other people's facts, which seemed like a very bad way to go about that type of work. Yeah,
6: it's not fact-checking. I mean, that is truly state media. <laughs> Just saying, yeah, oh, well, right. they said this, and so right. obviously th- this is uh, the well, truth. Because why would, the, yeah, but why would bi- the, the Biden administration lie? That's for the Trump administration. That's what they right. did. We don't right. have to do any fact-checking here. The funny thing is, you know, th- this idea whether or not you can tie a direct line doesn't really matter because tax dollars are going to this, and this is not new. It might be new from the And money's fungible, of, a, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact of the matter is I've been covering stories here on the West Coast, and I remember very distinctly talking about Booty bumping kits with Tucker Carlson, which very clearly we had tax dollars going to them. It's just basically taking a syringe that was given to addicts so that they can rectally inject themselves with oh. a mixture of water and drugs, and this was deemed oh. a, a safer way to go ahead and get high. Tax I, I missed, going to it.
0: I missed that segment, I, and I had no idea, it's like a booty bumping kit. I, I, I did not. i did I'm not, not bring the crops, hippest uh, person to
6: the Tucker Carlson. Show. I know.
0: Okay, I've never heard of
6: it either. i, I had not heard, heard of it about. either until I started to dive into it. But yeah, I mean, we, we give out. Needles to, to folks all across the country. You have, and generally speaking, we're talking about some of the progressive run cities, but tax dollars go to these things all the time, every day, every month, every year, and have been for a while under the guise of uh, a safe, uh, or excuse me, a, a harm reduction policy. We're no longer. In any of these places, we're no longer pushing for addicts to get treatment and to become clean. Because that's stigmatizing the addicts. We're not supposed to judge their habits. So instead we're supposed to enable them to continue to do what would uh, we would always very destructive call the things. Wrong move. Just like destructive yeah, to them,
0: destructive to the community, destructive to the people that sometimes they then go rob and steal from yep. or even harm. It's crazy. And look, if you want to make a case for some of these progressive quote unquote policies, on drugs and drug addicts, what have you, that's fine. And we can have the debate. Don't lie to us about what taxpayer dollars are supporting. Don't lie to us about what is in, you know, what is included in some of these programs. And that appears to be what the White House did, backed up by the media, that now seems to be contradicted by what the Washington Free Beacon literally uncovered with their own eyes and ears. Jason, one more thing, since you were talking about the West Coast and you're – in the Pacific Northwest, which is just sort of like crazyville out there, and you cover it every day on KTTH. On your show, that's the station, of course. That's our affiliate out in your neck of the woods. I was thinking about this actually on the train back from New York today in anticipation of our interview. This is such a terrible environment for Democrats nationally. People are angry about so many things, including crime, including inflation. I mean, the whole list goes on. If there were ever a moment for deep blue sort of crazy places like Oregon, Washington State, to maybe pivot, even temporarily, it might be a, a cycle, and, you know an election cycle like this one. And yet those places, at least to me from across the country, seem so far gone. I have very low expectations. Is there actually a chance for some sanity to prevail in your area? Or not really?
6: Not really. We're leaning into it. Right now, we've got an initiative uh, signature-gathering process for legalization across the board in Washington state for possession of drugs. What drugs? All drugs. They are moving in the opposite direction of any reasonable person after seeing the kinds of failures that we've seen on drug policy here in the Pacific Northwest. Oregon did something similar about a year and a half ago, a little over a year and a half ago. The only difference was they were giving out citations to people who were caught with any sort of uh, drug. So the
0: voters like this stuff. The voters look around and say, yes, let's do let's do this
6: they like it. They lean in. Anytime anyone calls it out, they just pretend that it's some conspiracy being pushed forward by conservative media and the MAGA crowd. And it's just so ludicrous. All you have to do is look at the data. Washington state saw 60% increase in fatal overdoses last year. Oregon was worse. And both cases, we are trending higher than the national average at a time where the CDC put out the official data this week showing 100 and what 107,000 fatal overdoses last year. It, it is so absurd. And I sit here getting ready for my own show about to talk about a city council that's getting rid of the Pledge of Allegiance because of the rise in nationalism and how it's a counter to what the country actually stands for. It's like, what are we doing? It is so bizarre that they're just not catching on to the mood of the public, but maybe it's because here in Washington, the mood isn't reflective of, of the national uh, landscape. We just yeah, lean no, into crazy.
0: Yeah, it's, it's like almost... Out there on an island. And thus we have the face, the poster child of progress and compassion. And it's Seattle. Yikes. Jason Rance, host of the Jason Rance Show, KTTH, 770 AM, 94.5 FM in Seattle and Tacoma. And Jason, we always appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You as well. And the Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Happy Friday on The Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. Glad to have you here. Earlier on the program today, we caught up with Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, a Republican, and we had a lot to talk about, lots going on in the state of Georgia, and a lot of his critics have been proven wrong in the last couple of days in particular. Here's part of my discussion with Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia. So it's my understanding, Governor, that today is the conclusion of the bill signing period, which has been an extremely busy one for you as governor down there in Atlanta. What have you all done in the state of Georgia this session?
3: Man, how much time have I got? <laughs> I'll give you I'll <laughs> give a, three minutes. <laughs> we had a great legislative session. It's one of the best, most conservative I've ever seen. Just an incredible budget where I was fulfilling the promise to – do a $5,000 dollars across board teacher pay raise when I ran, so we've gotten the last installment of that done this year. We're sending over a billion dollars back to the taxpayers to put in their pocket to help them offset this 40-year high Biden inflation. We were able to suspend the gas tax for two months to help save people a little money at the pump, again, fighting the bad decisions that have made in Washington, D.C., Um, we uh, did a lot of things on the public safety side of things. When you think about my commitment to going after street gangs and drug cartels and street racers in the city of Atlanta, we did a lot of stuff on education to make sure our kids aren't indoctrinated in the classroom and that our parents have a parent's bill of rights. So there's transparency, protecting our kids from obscene materials past a, you know, anti-mask mandate in our schools, putting our parents back in charge of our kids' education. So it's been an incredible session. Uh, Also, we were able, because of our state being open and our revenue coffers being full, we passed the largest state income tax cut in state history without raising other taxes. And we also did, to honor our veterans, uh, passed a military retiree's tax credit that's going to urge them to stay in Georgia when they go into their second careers to help us with our workforce development. So it's been a a great session, and, um, you know, really glad it's wrapped up because it was busy, but it was a good one.
0: And that budget, everything that you just talked about and more, when, you, when it all nets out, it's a balanced budget? Oh, absolutely. Thankfully, we have a balanced
3: budget amendment in
0: the state of Georgia, so
3: I balance the budget every year. I've been in office, and we've cut taxes now three times uh and Four years, four legislative sessions, and as you know, two of those were in the middle of a global pandemic.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: Our economy's uh, running on full cylinders right now. We have the lowest unemployment rate in the history of the state. Most people ever working. We had a record year economically last year. We've already broken those numbers in just the third quarter this year. So,
0: You mentioned in part of that answer in the whole sort of laundry four list. Year of- high Biden inflation. You mentioned in that laundry list of some of the accomplishments that you have finally sort of liberated the faces of students in schools where people don't have to wear masks. It's now, you know, an optional situation. I know one of the critics of that policy, of course, it's a very popular policy now. It's only grown in popularity, finally starting to align with the actual science on this. That full interview with Brian Kemp, governor of Georgia, available online at GuyBensonShow.com, also part of the free podcast podcast. On-demand, no charge to you every single day, including weekends. Bonus Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. quite an experience on Gutfeld last night. And they surprised me. They sandbagged me with a little segment about me. We'll talk about that when we return.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
0: Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show, Friday edition. We're almost there together. GuyBensonShow.com, our website Your Podcast free every day. Programming note, just a reminder, I'll be joining the panel on Fox News Sunday. Check your local listings on your local Fox station. Plus the replay on Fox News Channel. That is this Sunday morning. And then the replays are in the afternoon on FNC. Looking forward to that. Shannon Bream will be anchoring this weekend. No rest for the weary for yours truly, as we just keep marching along here. Looking forward to that. In the meantime, last night I was on Gutfeld, and we had promoted that here on the show. I was looking forward to it. I was admittedly a little bit more nervous than I almost ever get for TV, because it was going to be in a new studio that I hadn't seen yet, and there was going to be not like a dozen maybe two at the most people on folding chairs, set way back, there was going to be a full-blown studio audience. And I think the capacity is more than 80. And that's, you know, a real critical mass of people. And the way that they have it set up, as it turns out, I went and I looked at the studio before the taping. They are right on top of you. I mean, it's a large studio. They have done, let me just say, a superlative job with Gutfeld Studio. It is A+. plus. I walked in and got goosebumps. I could not believe how beautiful it was. Every little detail. It looked like a real late night TV studio. The lighting was amazing. They had a cityscape that was three dimensional. They had the branding. It was subtle in its own way. Not that much subtle about the show, but when you look at the studio, it's aesthetically stunning. It is absolutely beautiful. The colors are amazing, and it's not like a few bleachers or something. They have stadium seating. When Kat Timf talked about that last week on Fridays with Kat, I was like, uh, maybe they'll just have those kind of those risers that you would see at like a high school choir performance or something. No, this is this is a real audience seating area, and it's significant with, with real chairs or seats, seat backs and everything, and then... The actual set itself, again, is beautiful. It's the same overall setup. The chairs are bigger. You're a little bit closer together. The experience was completely different than any other Gutfeld I've done before because the energy of that audience, and, and that was a particularly fun audience. They were rowdy. They were into it. They were all warmed up and revved up and ready to go. And when they announced my name, so this was – and if you want to see some photos behind the scenes – from the studio, you can go to my Twitter. I tweeted it last night. I also put it on my Instagram story. My handle on Twitter and Instagram is at Guy P. Benson. You can also follow us here on the show at Guy Benson Show. But my photos are on my personal accounts, Guy P. Benson. And then you could hear the crowd getting warmed up, laughing, clapping. It's like, oh, that's actually a lot of noise. That's a lot of people. That's not a few folks. And then you line up backstage, and they introduce you one by one before the taping starts. And I happen to be the very first person they introduced. Like, please welcome, host of the Guy Benson Show, Fox News contributor, Guy Benson. And I know they were coached to cheer, but it still made me feel excited. I was like, oh, wow, these people care who I am. This is cool. And I waved and said hi. And you could tell people were just so happy and excited to be there. And these are Fox fans. So they know us from TV. We appreciate seeing them like folks who come into New York. And this is part of what they do when they're on vacation and the tickets are all free. You just have to get them in advance. So the energy was great. The jokes were really flying. Like the synapses were crackling. Last night on Gutfeld, we had a few very fun inside jokes that were developing over the course of the episode. And after the show, Greg was like, that was a really good show. That was really fun. And I agree. I haven't seen the ratings last night, but generally they're they're good on that show. So hopefully we kept that ball rolling for Greg and company. Kat was great, she was looking especially edgy and hot. Tyrus was hilarious. Rob Smith was the fourth panelist, and then yours truly. And I just had so much fun. And it's a very different scene, it's a very different experience than when there are maybe just a handful of people in there or no audience at all, which was the case for a long time with COVID. Because in the previous experience, there was a little bit more opportunity to get more material in. But last night, I think the energy and the laughter superseded that other concern. I think this net-net is better for the show even though there were times where I could barely hear what Greg was saying or what someone else had said because the audience was so loud. So it was just sort of more freewheeling and fun. So I had a great time. What I was not expecting was in the opening segment, they always introduce each person and they make fun of you, right? That's sort of the deal. Greg almost always makes fun of – my appearance, that I look very young, he says, like I'm a high school student or something. And I couldn't hear his intro of me yesterday because it was just so loud in the studio. I had to go back and watch it. And I believe he said he has the face of an eighth grader, and then he just muttered, in his glove compartment. (laughs) So that was dark. Um, And I, of course, was just sitting there smiling because I couldn't hear him. It's Guy Benson. Okay, yay. And he then went through. To introduce each person. And then just a few minutes into the show, if that, I guess they have a tradition on Gutfeld where if there are three dudes on the four-person panel plus Greg and Kat is the only woman on set, they call that dynamic on the show Guy Town. And then Greg and Kat started going back and forth about how this is like a Guy Town night, but there's a guy called Guy... On the Guy Town night, and I thought they were just sort of riffing a little bit back and forth. No, they had a whole bit produced about Guy Town featuring me, Guy Benson. It was edited in probably about six minutes. The production values were <laughs> were what they were, and that's part of the joke. Like, the cheesiness of it, the slapdash nature of it is part of the joke. And... There was a whole montage of photos of me that they got from Instagram, I think. And then a voiceover that I will allow you to hear right now. Here was the unexpected Guy Benson Town bit in Cut 11. Guy Town. It was a group of dudes, but now it's just one guy. And his name is Guy. Talking
1: about news, watching baseball, and going boating. He's in his 30s, but he looks 14. Guy Benson Town.
0: So, I, I literally had both palms toward the ceiling. I was like, what the hell was that? Kat was cracking up. I think, honestly, they did the whole thing just so Kat could see my face and get some amusement from it. And she did. So, kudos, Dirtbag Deb, which is her character, by the way. I'm not calling any names. Dirtbag Deb made an appearance on last night's show as a matter of fact. So I asked Greg, how much did those graphics cost? Because it was low budget, clearly. It was not the uh, slickest production values, again, by design. Greg said $280,000. He said we had to lay off a few cafeteria workers just to make that happen. He said they deserved it because they were looking him in the eye and it's in his contract that they're not allowed to do that. So that was how the show began. And it all went downhill from there. So producer Christine, I think, uh, has some questions. Christine is curious. All right, curious, Christine. What do you got?
1: Well, let's let's just say that you are, you know, the head of Guy Town, the mayor, should we say. Okay. Um, what are the rules of Guy Town? Can I come to Guy Town or are you going to ban me? Mm-hmm.
0: What's the so – uh, How much authority do I have as mayor? Am I sort of like a truly American mayor or am I sort of a – tyrannical dictator of guy town
1: we're gonna go with dictator
0: okay so i'm the dictator of guy town i think um we might let you in occasionally when invited for an ex- you know an explicit discrete period of time and then you'd have to leave and we would have your photo at security it's a gated community obviously we'd have your photo at security like a mugshot style front and to the side and we'd say this woman is only to arrive when she is on the ledger and she needs to be out by midnight. And that's what I heard, oh, by the so- way, from Judgy Joyce. Judgy Joyce also put a curfew on. Oh.
1: <laughs> Let's not talk about Judgy Joyce right now. Uh, <laughs> do, so I can't live in Guy Town, right? Like, I couldn't get no. an apartment there or a house. No, oh. no it's, it's,
0: it's mostly townhomes and single family homes. It's a gated community, and we are accepting applications now. Space is limited, it's very highly sought after, it's for very cool people of all ages obviously hey. it's a very it's a very diverse community but it's a classy group and so one of the reasons Look. for example we have extremely strict rules against lawn inflatables and so you're automatically not in because of that you're out and if someone has lawn inflatables not only do they get punctured by security and thrown <laughs> in a dumpster that person is then and the family whoever's living there is removed you get deported we have our own we have our own immigration rules and we will title 42 you right out of guy town if you've got ugly inflatables on the yard
1: wow this is yeah. a little stricter than i thought what about the, the dress code
0: boat shoes uh certainly uh. blazers boat shoes and blazers not just for the men I'm just kidding. Women women can look good in a blazer, actually, a certain look. But women have a little bit more flexibility. And, again, we're not going to totally micromanage. I am sort of a a light-touch, small-government person. Let's just keep it classy in Guy Town. That's all I ask.
1: I feel like my whole life is pretty classy. So I do feel like I could be a member, a living member in Guy Town. I mean, Wyatt for sure will be in Guy Town.
0: Yeah, Wyatt, I think, would be allowed. Uh, the The executive board would have to decide on that one, um, you know, whether or not you're classy enough. And the bad news for you is – well, I, the good news is there would be a vote. The bad news is the executive <laughs> committee is comprised of one person, and that's me. <laughs> Let me
1: guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, the, the mayor of Guy Town. Now, just if, if people are interested in moving, and there's only a few slots still available, a few contracts left outstanding, uh, we do have a beautiful – Clubhouse with a gym filled with Pelotons, obviously. We have free amenities. So, like, for example, we have vending machines that are gratis, like that you don't have to pay. And it's exclusively Coke Zero and peanut M&M's. That's all we have. And for <laughs> the adult celebrations, the pool parties, etc. of course, we have unlimited long drink. We have long drink on tap, as a matter of fact. We have huge... Perfectly chilled kegs of long drink at all times. I mean, it's a great place. I'm glad that they found out about it, that they gave us an advertisement for it. It's like, it's like the old villages commercial with a jingle and everything. This is just new and different. It's, you might call it fresh and fun. It's guy town. Will ponies be allowed? There is a stable. There are ponies. You are not allowed anywhere near the ponies, even during visitation hours. Because we know what you do to them. And we would like our ponies to survive, unlike yours, poor Carousel. So, Dirtbag Deb banned. Lifetime ban already in advance for Guy Town. Christine Cookie gets a chance, let's put it that way, as a visitor. And we'll see where things go from there. And you can inquire. If you're interested in living in Guy Town, you can just uh, send a tweet to Jar 1988 She's in charge. Actually, no, she's definitely oh. not in charge because, you know, we need, <laughs> we need a responsible adult who's in charge and not someone with your track record, for example, as a class mom. Like, if you couldn't handle that, you can't run Guy Town, even as the city manager.
1: Those moms were brutal to me, okay? It wasn't fair. It was stacked against me. Well, That's speaking all I got of to brutal,
0: say. Speaking of brutal moms, I hope you have a good do-over Mother's Day tomorrow. We'll have to get a report on Monday to see how that goes. It's Mother's Day 2.0 after the blow-up last weekend. We'll get that report from Cookie on Monday. I'll see you on Fox News Sunday on Sunday, and then back here on the radio as promised. Thank you for listening. Have a great weekend from all of us here at Guy Town. Good night.